Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, now let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 9 at verse 37. And we'll read through verse 45. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. On the next day, when they, had, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he, he suddenly screams. And it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your many mercies to us. One of your greatest mercies is that you have given us your word. And so, Father, as I preach your word this morning and as As we hear your word preached, I pray that you would help us, that your spirit would be active and it would be softening our hearts, opening up our minds so that we might receive your truth and that we might believe it and that we might live it. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for the many times we we know what your word says and decide to live the life of a hypocrite. And so, Father, I pray that your word would bring conviction and that we would change and put to death the deeds of the body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So just before the passage that we just read uh, is Jesus' transfiguration. He's transfigured before the the eyes of three of the apostles. And so what a great encouragement uh, for men who are in training, whose work lay before them. And, you know, for for those who didn't quite fully understand what was going on. And yet the transfiguration is just a brief moment. Uh, Perhaps the whole thing took 15 minutes. I mean, maybe it was less. Maybe it was an hour. Regardless, it's just a moment. And then Jesus, he goes from revealing, his his glory being revealed. 
And then he's just back into the humble work of the Son of Man, healing and preaching. He's back down in the trenches, right after being, having his glory displayed. For a moment, his, his full heavenly radiance shines forth, and then his radiance is cloaked in flesh, and he's back out in the fields to shepherd those who are like sheep without a shepherd. He comes down from the mountain and a large crowd, a large desperate crowd is there to meet him. No rest, no time to enjoy the encouragement he had received from his father when he was transfigured. No time to reflect. There's work to do and he must do it and agonizing it will be. Remember, our God is is a crucified Savior. He's a crucified Savior. Should he have stationed himself in this world as a transfigured Savior, there would have been much for us to behold, right? Much for our eyes to behold, yet that was not how God revealed himself to the mass of humanity. The incarnate Son of God was average-looking, was unattractive, was despised by mankind. In fact, even more than that, he became sin. Every God-hating, rebellious act that you've ever committed is what he became. He was extremely ugly because of that. So we, um, he did all of that so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the humility of Jesus Christ is your salvation. And part of that humility is the fact that he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Right? So he walks down from that mountain on that day, just after the apostles saw his heavenly shining glory. As, and he walks down as an average appearing, maybe a less than average appearing man. And the apostles are not to be talking him up until after he rises from the dead is something they don't even yet understand, right? And, and in enters the next person begging for mercy and healing. In X is the next client, right? Jesus is back in the trenches of this sin-sick world. A man from the large crowd seizes the opportunity to speak to Jesus as we have, as was often the case we see in the Gospels. Because he's known for healing the sick and casting out demons. He shouts at Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy, or only begotten. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. And what a terrible, terrible experience for that father. Imagine that. We learned from the other gospel accounts that when the demon sees this boy, it would cast him into fire, would cast him into water. So by this point, the boy is probably disfigured, wounded. It has also rendered him mute, which would be another agony for a parent. Right? There's that age your children are when they're beginning to want to communicate, but they don't have words yet, and they're just so frustrated that they can't communicate with you? Well, it would be that way for this man even into his older childhood. 
Um, I often have the thought that these descriptions of demon possession and the ravages they brought on someone's body is a metaphor for the ravages of sin upon the soul. Right? We should see it like that. Imagine if we could see the scars our sins have left on our spirits or on our souls or, or on our bodies. Right? We can see those in many cases. But sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you and it seizes us and leads us down paths to death. It throws us into convulsions. It renders us mute and useless. It, and only with difficulty are we set free from it. Our sins. The difficulty of being set free from sin is nothing other than the agony of the eternal Son of God on the cross. Our souls outside of Christ are sin-possessed. And until we are set free, sin just mauls us. It owns us. It leads us. It takes us wherever it wants. And have you ever noticed, you who face chronic illness, how you sometimes don't realize how sick you've been until you feel better, until you get healthy? Um, much more is that the case with sin. Right? We have no clue how sin ravages us how it keeps us in its bondage until we are made healthy, until we are cleansed in the blood of Christ and are set free. Right? Many of you have experienced that, being set free from those wounds of your sin. And it was glorious. And then you realized how wretchedly sinful you were. So on that day, Jesus is dealing with a boy, a demon, and the physical ravages that come with it. And this this being the man's only son, he's desperate to have Jesus help. Desperate too because he had already sought help from many others. He went to the disciples and they couldn't, they couldn't help him. He tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Now before we look at Jesus' response, you should know that this this man is the man who is reported to have said, I believe, help my unbelief, right? In the other gospel accounts. In the gospel of Mark, we are told that he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then that statement, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals the boy. There's a, there's a tragic beauty to that statement, isn't there? I believe, help my unbelief. Faith is good. And we never want to sanctify unbelief as many hipsters would do today, right? Skepticism and unbelief seems to be the, what hipsters peddle in, even in the church. Right? There... The Christian faith is not about slightly believing and significantly doubting. Right? Rather, it is about believing that God is and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But the flesh, the remaining indwelling sin in us, wages war against our faith and against our spirit. And unbelief rears its ugly head. Unbelief is sin, after all. 
And so there's a glorious honesty in what that man says, I believe, help my unbelief, but though it is honest, let's not make it an ideal. It is not the ideal. Jesus had just said to the man, all things are possible to him who believes, right? He did not say all things are possible to him who believes more than he doubts. Right? The goal is faith, full faith, a heart fully devoted to the Lord, to, to uh, not be the double-minded man unstable in all of his ways, right? Calvin is balanced on this in, in a way that modern dudes are not. He says, uh, he says this, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of faith. It is our, and so we agree with that, right? We're never going to be perfect. There's sin, sin dwells in us, and God, God amplifies that small faith. And, and yet it doesn't keep Calvin from saying, it is our duty in the meantime carefully to shake off the remaining, the remains of infidelity which adhere to us, to strive against them and to pray to God to correct them. And as often as we are engaged in this conflict, to fly to him for aid. Right? It's not like to cuddle up to your unbelief. It's like to recognize, yeah, you'll find unbelief until you're glorified. But in the meantime, fight your unbelief. You have to fight it. Now, back to Luke. How does Jesus, and this is really the focus for me in this passage, how does Jesus respond to the news that his disciples had tried to cast out the demon from the young man but we're unable. Well, it appears he's annoyed and angry, doesn't it? He's annoyed and angry with them. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? You know, the side of Jesus that Hallmark and, and, um, and Precious Moments and... Our society doesn't really like to focus on, doesn't really think is in Scripture. Well, who is he directing his statement at? It says the whole generation. So he's not just focused on the boy's father. He's not just focused on the disciples or even the scribes who have been hovering around, um, which we learn in the Gospel of Mark, arguing with everybody where they go. He's not focused on any part of them, but the whole mass of this people here together, this generation, right? So he refers to the wickedness and perversion of that generation. So it's, he, he's, he's annoyed and angry with that generation of people. Second, what's the problem? There's a lack of faith everywhere. He can heal the sick, raise the dead, calm the storms, know someone's whole past, and it's all met with further unbelief and questioning and disputing by all the people that he came to save. There's a real sense in which Jesus is righteously indignant with all men, and in particular with that generation. 
He's written of his glory in the skies. He came and made his dwelling among them. The crippled have walked, the blind receive sight, and sin continues to afflict them all. And yet in the face of the sinfulness of mankind, how have we always seen God respond? How have we always seen God respond to the sinfulness of man? Well, you probably have one of two thoughts going through your mind. Shortly after his creation, when man could only be described with these words, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, God lets loose his wrath on mankind. And yet, there is mercy. Right? We are allowed into the mind of God during that time through the scriptures. And it says this, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Right? He was annoyed and angry with man. And he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, what? Found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there it is, we see the heart of God angry at sin, dismayed at unbelief, willing always and everywhere to deal sinful man a fatal blow, and yet grace is there. Noah, one of the unrighteous, one of the wicked sinners, one of those who was provoking God by his sin, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's why. Jesus, the same as he was on that day back in Genesis, right? Jesus, as he was in that day in Genesis, looks about him and sees the wickedness and perversion of the generation that he's in the midst of as a man. He sees it even in the unbelief of his own disciples, and he is rightly angry. And yet, even after making this statement, how long will I be with you and put up with you? He goes on to grant grace to this man and the healing of his son. Right? How long will Jesus be with you and put up with you? How long did Jesus stay with them and put up with them? He stayed just long enough to die for many, to raise them from death to life, to transfer them from darkness to light. That's the long-suffering mercy and the grace of God. Dear brothers and sisters, that's what that is. But do not forget that Jesus is righteously angry and it is only because of his forbearance through the ages. The day of the fall of Adam and Eve down to January 2nd, 2022. It is merely his kindness, his patience, his eternal loving kindness that allows any man to be saved. We want to explain away the element of Jesus' anger, his annoyance in this passage because we don't think we are as, you know, half as bad as we really are. We think God owes us something of his favor. We're Americans after all. We're conservatives. We have omniscience when it comes to being on the right side of history and having the right views of vaccinations and viruses. We've got it. Pinned down. 
We think God owes us something because we are not nearly, not even close to as bad as most people. Not so fast, right? We reason like that because of our wicked, perverted, unbelieving blindness. I mean, what terrible wickedness is our pride, isn't it? Our pride. We have such inflated egos that even after we have committed adultery electronically, even after we have murdered our children through abortive fashions, even after we've indulged our, our excess everywhere, even after we've been embarrassed by Jesus and his word, especially where it goes against our cultural moment, we still think that God owes us something, that God is in our debt somehow. We continually think too highly of ourselves. And very little of the long-suffering nature of God Almighty who is nevertheless a righteous judge who has indignation every day. God is angry all the time. There is simply no end to our pride, and our pride has the double effect of elevating ourselves and diminishing God. Our pride overlooks sins and loses a sense of awe when considering God's patience. Every generation has had its deep, you know, blind, unbreakable evil. And Jesus, were he in our midst, were he in the midst of, of the battlefields of Napoleon, were he in the midst of the Egyptians building the, the, the pyramids, were he in the midst of the coronation of kings, Henry VIII, were he present at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, were he um, in South Carolina's Senate chambers, he would declare and does declare through his scriptures, how long will I be with you and put up with you? How long? And even still, he heals the boy. He's feeling the cosmic weight of man's sin and he's angry. And he heals the man's boy. He shows mercy. He sets aside, he, he sets aside, he suppresses his own anger and has mercy. Are you remembering that that is true of you too if you are in Christ by faith? God's righteous anger against you for your very personal and particular sins has been set aside, actually not just set aside, but but propitiated by the work of his son so that he might pour out his love on you. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. God forever wrathful, forever merciful. So let's not get wound up about the fact that Jesus got angry that day. If he hadn't gotten angry in the face of sin and unbelief, we would have had, you know, 
we, we would have sympathy for Marcion, who only saw positive, nurturing, happy things from Jesus and only saw gnarly, judgmental, destructive, mean, mean negative things from that, that, that God of the Old Testament. And I think perhaps there are a lot of Marcions teaching in the church today, cherry-picking Jesus' happy statements and forgetting that he said he would bring not peace but a sword and that he was ready to kindle fire on the earth and that he was angry at that entire generation. Now Jesus was angry towards sin yet infinitely patient and submissive to the will of his Father who sent him to redeem his elect. That's good news. Oh, the patience of God toward you and me, toward all who have ever lived after the day of Adam and Noah. I mean, think of the patience. The patience of God. The patience of God is your salvation, right? But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And so we see in a microcosm on that day when he healed the demon-possessed uh, boy, the whole of mankind's salvation. Now the demon comes out of the boy with a great struggle, and while everyone is marveling at this, Jesus makes a prophetic statement. Let these words sink into your hearts, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I mean, he's thinking about the sinfulness of mankind. And he's like, it's going to get worse. The Son of Man. And they would know that that is the, the Messiah prophesied from the book of Daniel. When they heard that name, they would be saying, hmm, not just the ordinary man. is going to be delivered in the hands of men. Now the disciples don't, don't understand yet what Jesus is talking about. In fact, they can't yet understand why, because the passage says the matter was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. They were confused on the matter and, and because perplexed, afraid, afraid to ask him about it. That's like, that's like me in every class I've ever taken. You just don't feel confident enough. You just feel stupid enough that you're never going to ask a question and let people know you're stupid. Right? Jesus, the holy God who exercises his wonderful patient, patience, is feeling in his very bones in his very bones, the rebellion of mankind through all ages, and he's been sent by his Father, God Almighty in heaven, to redeem those rebellious sinners and enliven those dead men. And the means, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus is exercising his patience. How long shall I put up with you? And his next thought is, I'm going to be delivered up, put to death, suffer agony on a tree, separation from my Father for their sake. 
angry and then mentions his mission. I'm angry with them and will be killed by them. I'm righteously indignant at their sin and unbelief and will love them still. I wish to strike them down for their sins and yet not my will but my Father's will I will be struck down for them. By my wounds at their sinful hands, they will be healed. How long would Jesus put up with that wicked and perverse generation until he was hanging on a tree for them? How long will Jesus put up with that wicked and perverse generation until he is forsaken by his Father on the cross for their salvation? How long will he put up with our wicked and perverse generation? Until he sends forth his son to loose his anger against the unrighteousness of the world. Until he returns on that day which no one knows but the Father. Then God will give vent to all his anger. And there will be no more opportunities for mercy. Mercy will be receiving their mercy. His mercy will endure only with those who have been welcomed to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his, his perfect anger will eternally find expression in the burning fires of hell. This is what I believe. Scripture teaches it. You see, the expression of God's perfections will be the end of all things. The expression of God's perfections is the purpose of all things. Right? It, it really, the, all of this, all of this cosmic redemption really is not about you. It's not about you. Right? His mercy will forever be proclaimed by the presence of the redeemed around him and his righteous indignation will forever be proclaimed by the eternal punishment of the unrepentant. But all those things will be to the praise of his glory. That's what it's all about. You're a slave meant to bring God glory. That's what it's all about. Now, God is being patient with you and desires that you would repent, but he will not wait forever. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. He has numbered your days. He has offered you the mercy of Jesus Christ and called you to live for him and no longer for your own desires. And all you have to do is believe that he rose from the dead. And confess that with your mouth. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's coming like a thief. One last thing, don't be confused. All people think about God and some, something of his character. Everybody thinks about God and something of his character. 
But the pride of man is so deep that instead of looking to his word for a full picture of his glory, they just determine that their God is like this and like that. And of course, they determine that God is never angry at sin and that every man is headed to heaven. In other words, every man is a theologian. Every man, using the term inclusively, ladies, every man is a theologian. And if a person is not guided by God's word, he just has himself as the source of his very own personal truth. And he will always then tilt things in his favor. That's what will happen. But Scripture doesn't do that. Scripture does the very opposite of that. It seems like it tilts away from you. It is not in your favor, right? In actuality, it defines reality. It teaches us of God's anger. It teaches us that God is angry against the wicked every day and that each of us is wicked because we were born in sin and we sin on top of it. And on the other side of the equation, it teaches us of God's love and mercy and kindness, patience, forbearance, even towards sinners. The only bridge for that gap between God's wrath and God's love is the cross of Jesus Christ. The very expression, the the locus of God's just anger and justifying love is the cross. The cross is where the wrath of God and the love of God converge. The cross explains to us both the anger of God and the love of God. Which means that if you remove the cross from your theology, if you come up with some scheme where you get to heaven without the cross of Jesus Christ and the work of the Son of God, you've acted as a theologian, just a very bad theologian who ignores sin. And ignores God's character. And ignores what God has spoken about his works in Scripture. You know, the mercy of God makes sense only as we contemplate the holiness of God. The mercy of God towards sinners only makes sense as we contemplate his anger towards sinners. Right? His healing of the Son and showing mercy on that day only makes sense with the backdrop of his anger towards sin and wrath. His wrath towards sin. And it is only because of the cross of Jesus Christ <laughs> that that seeming contradiction makes any sense at all. Right? There's no sense to be made outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why the cross and Good Friday is so important to our faith. It's where the anger and the love of God converge in the Son. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. And I'll close this prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Oh, our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that sinful man and pure God 
can be reconciled through the God-man, Jesus Christ. We thank you that your, our desperation is, is mitigated by Jesus obeying you, enduring the cross, suffering, becoming sin, bearing your anger, propitiating sin, and us being the recipients of his righteousness. Lord, and we see that. We see that on that day when he healed that demon-possessed boy, when he expressed his anger at that generation and yet still had mercy. Lord, we thank you for that mercy. We thank you for your kindness. And Father, I ask that we would not become bad theologians, that somehow try to remove your wrath from your perfections. Somehow try to, to diminish you so that, uh, so that your love becomes an emotional uh, sort of mannish love. But Father, we know that your love is, is original. Your love is what you are. And you have, you have poured out that love within us through the Spirit, by faith. Lord, we thank you for that mercy. We thank you for your gift to us. Father, I pray for those in our body who are ailing. I think of a man who joins us online often, Jeremy Pierce, and asks that you would strengthen his body and heal him from his, his rheumatoid arthritis. Father, we pray that you would give him relief. Pray for Kim, who is suffering these days and is just in constant pain. We ask that you would have mercy upon her. And Father, as, as the pain is there, I pray that you would direct their meditations to good and right things and you would help them from despairing. And Father, I pray for, I pray for our nation. We ask that you would bless our nation with, with revival that your spirit would bring strength to your churches, that we would see conversions and those leaving behind idols to worship the one true living God, that we would see many masses of people, people we never expected, professing faith, clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ, looking for a way of escape, Father, and entering into the kingdom of light. Lord, we ask for this for your glory. And Father, we pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.